Welcome to NatureVac Podcast, where we are talking with investors about their visions of the new green world. My name is Tarmo Virki, and in this episode, I'm talking with Helen Lin from At One Ventures. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying the NatureVac Podcast. I'm Merit, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Single Earth, and we're a team of more than 70 people building a nature-backed economy. And if that sounds crazy enough for you, then join us. Sign up at single.earth to be among the first to get access to our nature-backed tokens. And let's talk more on our Earthsavers Discord channel. Enjoy the show. Hello, Helen. Welcome to the Nature Backed. Thanks. Good to be here. Tell me a few words about At One. What's the story of the fund? Sure. We are founded by a guy, Tom, who was previously a co-founder at Google X. So we have a lot of deep tech in our genes. He was the guy who put one of the world's first autonomous cars on the roads, um, worked on Google Glass, Project Loon, a lot of those famous projects. Um, and so we use that deep tech lens to source, identify, and evaluate technologies to combat climate change and other environmental problems. Um, the backstory is, you know, Tom realized one day that he was uniquely positioned to launch a fund like this. And while he thought he might do something like that later in life, maybe in retirement, uh, he was in Hawaii where he has a second home and he saw the coral reef near his house blanch and die within the course of just a few months, which is a shockingly short and fast amount of time to watch kind of a, a, a small ecosystem just die. Um, and so that shocked him into realizing that he needed to act now and it could not wait until his retirement. And so he decided to launch the fund. So February 2020, we launched and since then, we've done 28 investments across all industries uh, and also with a global mandate. Um, so based, and we're based out of Silicon Valley and I'm based in London. 28 investments in two and a half years for a small fund. That's quite a lot. Yeah, we've been busy. <laughs> but you said cross the board. I mean, does it cover all the sectors then or... Still focused somehow, focused on well, emission. So I used to say that we had five sectors of focus. And the original thesis was that we focus on the sectors that are the biggest contributors to climate change. And when you break it down and you look at the pie chart, right, of like global greenhouse gas emissions and what percentage comes from which sectors, you come out with energy, transportation, manufacturing, buildings and construction, and food and agriculture. But then you realize that that's basically like 95% of the GDP. And so it doesn't really make sense to call it sectors of focus, really. <laughs> um, the point is, is we're not, you know, just an energy fund. We're not just a food and ag fund um, the way some other more dedicated funds are. Uh, we'll look at anything that takes a really big swing at climate. So that's our narrowing function is we're only looking for technologies that can completely rewrite the way things are done. So if you think about when most industries were created back during the industrial revolution, they were not built for purpose for sustainability. They were built for purpose for automation and convenience and cutting costs and that kind of thing. And so it doesn't make sense 
to take something that was built for one purpose and expect it to now serve this other purpose of sustainability. If you want sustainability, you now have to go back and recreate it and build it for that proper purpose of sustainability, right? Like the analogy I use is if you have a coffee maker, you're not going to try and retrofit that coffee maker to become a blender to make smoothies, right? That sounds absurd. <laughs> and similarly, you're not going to retrofit a lot of our existing industries with incremental little changes to suddenly become sustainable. You have to go back to the drawing board and recreate them. Mm. Throw but, away the coffee maker. <laughs> but uh, I mean, going back to the drawing board of manufacturing and uh, rewriting it, it sounds, uh, sounds uh, like quite a chunk of work. Yes. Yes. No, you're right to sound wildly skeptical. Um, you know, it's, in some ways, actually, it's easier. And in some ways, it, it is, all, I mean, it's going to be a lot of effort either way. Um, so think, for example, about retrofitting anything. Uh, maybe a car would be a good example, because there are actually people out there who do retrofit cars, right? Um, trying to retrofit things, often you're, you're having to find all the little bugs that you might not be aware of. There's all these little gremlins in there, and then you're trying to like upgrade and fix. And, and again, it's not built for purpose, right? And so starting completely over and just building it the proper way from scratch, an electric vehicle does not function any way like an internal combustion vehicle, right? Like the way the drivetrain works and all of that, it's just completely different, right? It just connects straight to the wheels and, and all of this. And so if you were to try and retrofit an internal combustion car and electrify it, you probably would have wound up with like a very clunky kind of thing before normal EVs were invented that tried to work kind of like an internal combustion car, but with like electricity powering it instead of, you know what I mean? And so if you think about that as an example, you know, I think it makes you realize that actually, yes, it's going to be a ton of work to start completely over and build things from scratch. But in some ways, you, it's going to be less work to do it that way because it'll just be more effective and you save yourself all the heartache of all the failure and the tweaking and the endless iteration, right? That, that often will instead come with retrofitting and, and dealing with legacy technologies. Mm. I totally understand it from the point of, you know, you or me or, you know, one single person, but uh, you kind of go against the uh, massive industries and uh, probably billions of dollars of investments and people protecting those and so on. It's, it's you know, I'm coming back to the fact it still yeah. sounds like a massive struggle. Yeah. So the way we think about that is, um, again, you start with a foundational assumption that human beings are not going to just do the right thing out of the goodness of their hearts, which sounds a bit cynical, but unfortunately, as a species, we've demonstrated we have a track record of doing that, right? And if that is the foundational assumption, then what does drive our decision making? And usually it is that humans and corporations made of humans will make decisions that are economically rational. And so how do you then introduce new technologies where the economically rational decision is to adopt the new technology. Don't even think about sustainability. That is a byproduct of making the economically rational decision. And I'll give you an example. So let's say we have plastics, you know, scourge of the oceans, of landfills, of a lot of places. Um, you can try to recycle it, again, relies on a lot of human behavior to cooperate, which, again, has demonstrated to be very inefficient in the past. 
So our stance on plastics is replace the material, right? Just make the material out of something that's biodegradable, earth digestible, marine digestible, so that people can do their worst. You know, throw that plastic in the street, throw that plastic in the ocean. It doesn't matter because it's just going to biodegrade wherever it is. However, for the corporations that manufacture these plastic things to adopt that material, that bioplastic has to be price parity or cheaper compared to PET or any of these petroleum-based plastics. So we have a portfolio company, Cruise Foam, that makes um, a substitute for styrofoam or polystyrene that is made out of uh, shrimp shells, crustacean shells. Um, and, and that's processed into another substance called chitin or, or chitosan. Um, and they actually have a very visible pathway to achieving price parity or cheaper with traditional polystyrene with similar performance characteristics. And so that's the thesis, right? If it costs the same or if it's even cheaper and it performs just as well, why wouldn't you adopt it? And then by adopting it, you then also have a slew of these other benefits, especially in the world of plastics. With that example, with oncoming regulation for extended producer responsibility and all these things that no one has any good solutions to right now, right? So you're killing all these different birds with one stone and allowing them to still make that economically rational decision in the meantime. So that's how our thesis kind of works. You, you rewrite the way the thing is done, but only in a way that has that cost-benefit case study, a business case for your consumer that creates a no-brainer value proposition. But you found 28 cases like that. <laughs> uh, the short answer is yes. <laughs> the, and, and we'll be trying to find 30 more of those with funds too, right? That, mm -hmm. that we're actively raising right now. The longer answer is that it's a journey and we are early stage investors. We focus on seed and series A. And so obviously most of the companies have not actually achieved this status at the time that we invest. Um, but we focus on, you know, techno-economic, physics, scientific and financial fundamentals. You look at mass and energy balances and you extrapolate those and you, you know, create projections that with different scenarios, right? Low, medium, high, pessimistic, optimistic. And if you don't achieve this, you know, advancement in your technology, then okay, then this is like what the pessimistic scenario looks like. And through, you know, that kind of standard methodology, we, we uh, arrive at a level of confidence about whether we think the company will achieve that or not. Um, mm. And that's, that's early stage investing. Mm, right? Exactly. Uh, the climate focus, is there some simple way, you guys, how do you measure it? Mm. Uh, I mean, uh, I've, yeah. I've been speaking with some funds which say that basically for their LPs, it has to be carbon. That's the only simply measurable thing in that climate. But how do you guys? Yeah, carbon's important. Um, it's also not the only variable in a very complex equation of fixing all the problems the planet has right now. So we look at carbon, we do calculations of CO2 equivalent uh, when it makes sense, but it doesn't always make sense. Um, and we also try not to split hairs and lose the forest for the trees, no pun intended, um, because you can do massive, really complex life cycle analyses. And there are companies that are dedicated to doing just that, 
right, with teams of people who are very smart, who that's all they do is sit in rooms and do LCA calculations all day. So we clearly don't have the bandwidth to do that level of calculation internally on our own team, nor does it necessarily make sense. It starts to feel a bit academic sometimes um, and takes you away from the actual goal of our investing, which is just to make sure that, A, we're taking these really big swings that'll move the needle on fixing climate change, um, and B, that we understand what the strategic levers are that will either prevent a company from achieving that big impact or, or drive it to achieving that impact. And so it's less about, sometimes it's less about what is that end result of the calculation of, oh, you'll be able to potentially abate a billion tons of CO2E, like that's great. But again, no one has the crystal ball where that number is going to be anywhere near accurate. And if they tell you it's accurate, they're lying. And, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's more about, well, what were the assumptions that you made to get to that number of a billion tons of CO2E in 10 years time or whatever, right? And now let's look at those assumptions and understand, like, if I pull this lever, does the number go up and down and by how much? And if I pull that lever, then that, and now we know as investors, once we invest and we're sitting on the board, how do we help guide this company to maximize that number that comes out the back end? So I think that's more important. We do look at TIE, which is a, a metric. So it's like TAM, total addressable market, but for impact. So it's total addressable impact, TIE. And so that does come out to, yeah, you know, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of CO2E. Um, and we do want that to be usually in the hundreds of millions um, of tons per year of abatement potential if it's something that actually has direct emissions. But we also look at other issues, right? Like the plastics example from earlier, that doesn't make sense to translate that into a CO2E calculation. But you can count that there's 300 million tons of plastic produced every year. And so how large is the potential abatement of the plastics problem itself with this technology that we're looking at right now? Are you going to do paper straws? Well, that's nice, you know, but it's a drop in the bucket, right? In terms of the plastics problem. I'm not downing anyone who makes paper straws. I use paper straws, they're great, but we're not gonna invest in a company that does paper straws, right? It's just that that's not our thesis. Um, and that's not a CO2E calculation either for that deal. We look at biodiversity issues, right? So if you're going to look at a deal that's helping to save the bees, because bees are one of the most important pollinators in the world to encourage biodiversity, that's not a CO2E calculation to evaluate the impact of that, right? It's, it's thinking about like, what happens if all the bees die? Because man, we're killing a lot of bees right now when we spray pesticides on farms all over the world. And, you know, and if we remove that problem, how much can we then help various species, you know, to stay alive and, and all of this. So that's the thing. I think the focus on carbon, it almost is a little bit too narrow because it, if we were a fund that was only allowed to invest in things with some kind of carbon calculation hitting a certain threshold, we might not ever invest in like a bee deal or a biodiversity deal or a plastics deal even for that matter, right? And that doesn't make sense because those are big problems too. <laughs> and everything's connected in ecosystems. So we need to fix all of it. And at the same time, um, but we do do various yeah, other calculations that, that give us the confidence that the problem statement that has been defined by a company is one that is worth solving. Mm. If you uh, kind of look at the se sector, 
in February 2020 when you launched, it was probably the year when quite a lot of climate funds launched. I, I don't have the statistics at hand, but I would guess that, you know, in 20 and 2020 and 2021, there was probably, you know, similar amount of climate funds launched as the 10 or 20 years before that. Have you seen the kind yeah. of, uh, how, how does it look, this kind of, um, I don't know, boom from inside? Is it mm. actually that you go and compete for the deals like crazy because there are not too many interesting cases or? It's a good question. So you're right. There have been a lot of funds that have launched in the past couple of years, which is a good thing in general, right? You Absolutely. want more capital to be funneled towards these solutions. And if it feels a little bit hypey or trendy, I would say it's a good hype and it's a good trend compared to something like maybe, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, you know, there's a lot of like, weird fintech out there that probably is not doing a lot of people a lot of good that's quite trendy you know so so like in terms of trends like it's it's one that is at least driving towards doing something good now the question becomes how well is it actually executing because you can have a lot of capital but if it's not being funneled appropriately it's still not really having the right impact there is some competition I would say in general, climate tech investing is more collaborative than traditional VC investing. We know a lot of the other investors in our space and we often look at deals together. We share diligence. Um, it does occasionally get competitive, but much less so, I would say, than um, when I was at my previous fund and, and it was more traditional investing. So, so that's good. And I don't know if it will stay that way forever. It probably won't, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and so it's up to those of us in the ecosystem to try and keep that competition healthy, obviously. Uh, but but in general, yeah, I think you know there's a surfeit of capital, and then it fluctuates with the the market going up and down. And in 2021, there was definitely a surfeit of capital. It was a very frothy market, but then we all saw how quickly that could correct <laughs> as well. <laughs> So it's just a matter of, again, just trying to stay disciplined and trying to not let that noise of what's going on with the broader market conditions influence you too much and still just like finding those really interesting companies with the good fundamentals and supporting them, right? Mm -hmm. When the market's down, those companies still need support and it's a great time. 2020 was a great example. Um, it's a great time to get in and support some really amazing companies and founders for very reasonable valuations. 2021, we had to adopt a slightly different strategy because valuations went up dramatically. And some of them felt honestly a bit inflated for what the fundamentals were of the underlying asset. So we had to start looking a bit earlier and earlier stage um, where there's more uncertainty and probably more risk. But at the same time, you know, you get more value for your, your money. And so I think there's just different strategies you adopt at different mm. times as well. And then, of course, in the fall of 22, it's again a different world, right? Yeah, yeah, again, now. Now it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, I think 2020 was clearly a down market. 2021 was clearly an up market. And 2022, we're seeing in different sectors, they've been affected differently. Okay. So some of your more esoteric sectors like biotech, that's always been quite you know, highly valued, they're remaining, you know, to perform quite strong. Some of your industrials are coming back down already. Food tech 
still remains really hot. Ag tech, depending on what kind of ag tech, is kind of up and down a little bit. Um, and geographies, of course, matter as well. So it, the way I've been thinking of it is, is when there is an economic downturn, investors typically take a flight to safety. It's kind of like you always see the people start buying gold, <laughs> right? Because they think that it's a store of value that won't change. And so the more you look as a company in a startup, the more you look like a brick of gold to an investor that is a stable store of value that is not going to be hugely volatile, the more they will actually flock to you when there's a flight to safety. Yes, but by definition, you know, a startup and their safety are not really in the same <laughs> sentence, no? Agree. Um, I think there are also things like, are you putting out a product in the market that has elastic or inelastic demand? You know, hey, if I'm selling like, I don't know, Louis Vuitton purses, like the luxury good that depends on, you know, disposable income and that, that kind of thing, um, maybe not so great. Actually, I don't know. They might have done all right. Um, <laughs> they might have. Yeah, but uh, but you get my point. Like things mm. that, that are really not necessary and, and have more elastic demand, that might be considered more volatile in a down mm. market, right? But if you're selling something that is a durable good with inelastic demand that people need, I think that's part of why food tech has done okay, because you, you, you need food, yeah. you know? But then within food, there is, of course, all these different subdivisions as well, Um you know, and, and the details matter, the, those nuances matter. Uh, but, but I think that's one kind of differentiation that we've seen. I think also more than ever, that commercial traction starts to be really important. Um, and so at early stages, you don't have to be doing $10 million of ARR already, but if you can at least demonstrate that you have some kind of proof of product market fit, um, we've been definitely telling our own portfolio companies to really prioritize that before they try to raise in in a market like this one, um, because it just really brings that that risk profile down so much. Absolutely, absolutely. The um, uh, we talked about a little bit about few of the investments you guys have been making. You mentioned the cross foam. Uh, any other kind of examples you're really proud of? I mean, I know the fund is not that old, but uh, but still, I'm sure some of yeah. them are doing really well. So um, we have a company in Africa. Uh, of course, that's that's kind of where a lot of my heart still is. And uh, Rome is the name of the company. They are based in Kenya and fully operating there, doing electric motorcycles and electric buses for the Kenyan market. Most of the transportation in Kenya and a lot of African countries is shared transport because there's just not enough GDP per capita for people to own their own personal vehicles. So if you electrify shared transport, you're going to electrify the majority of, of all transport. Um, and so they have some really interesting commercial traction. They've signed a massive commercial contract for, with an order for 30,000 motorcycles for next year that we're all very excited about. They have won um a contract that's in the midst of being documented now for 100 buses and so yeah the future is looking really bright for them and that particular thesis for that investment is a bit unique because it is in a more developing market and i think this is an area that a lot of other funds uh, don't pay as much attention to whether they just don't have the 
resources to go understand those markets or they just don't have a desire to to really go do that but most of the world's population lives in the global south right there are actually more people that live in the global south than than otherwise and yet they contribute less to global greenhouse gases than in developed markets so the entire continent of africa is only like four percent of global greenhouse gas emissions um but so much of the world's population, right, lives lives in that market and, and similar markets. At the same time, they're going to be the first ones to feel the most catastrophic effects, right, of, of climate change, right? A lot of farming, a lot of agriculture. So as sea levels rise, they'll be the ones that will lose their farmlands and their abilities to, to carry on with that as a, a way of making a living. And so there's this concept of climate justice where it feels really inequitable that the people who contributed the least to the problem are the ones who feel the effects of the problem first and heaviest. And it's an area that I feel really strongly about. And so, yeah, really excited to just support a company that's there and to also show that you can invest in that market and have a really strong climate impact while also like having it be a strong commercial win. So that one's one of the more interesting ones. Uh, yeah. Yeah, among the more unique ones for sure. Don't hear too often about the climate investments in Africa. I mean, maybe in some cases something to do with the solar energy, but uh, that's pretty much it, I would have to say. Exactly. There was a big pay-as-you-go solar push a few years ago. I mean, it's still going on, and there's still some interesting models that are refining that model to make it more effective so the loan loss rates you know, with the loans attached to the solar systems are better um but by and large i think that model is not really viewed to be hugely disruptive anymore um and it has a bunch a slew of other issues i won't <laughs> get into right now um uh, but but yeah that that's the thing right so back to my point earlier about how do you take a big swing at a big problem in a given place that that transportation issue uh you know if you even just look at pictures of big cities in africa you just see like the roads are just like completely congested with these motorcycles and these buses um and so you are kind of driving right at the heart of, of a big source of their emissions by mm. by targeting that and then if you look at the you know climate investments in europe and if you look at the picture of the western european towns you see how those streets are cluttered with uh, scooters and e-bikes and that's where the climate investment of Europe is going to. Uh, to me it feels yeah. you know maybe not part of the problem but uh, you know not at least uh, part of the solution. Yeah micromobility is interesting. We have not really invested in that. I think it might be helpful for something like micromobility to think about it as part of a broader thesis of just electrification, right? Because you cannot think about electrifying vehicles without then also thinking about how do you handle the grid as a result? Because you put all this extra charging burden on the grid and now you have a grid problem. And so how do you balance that out? Um, and so I think that is what's kind of going on now that you see in the market is you had this wave of like micromobility and now everyone's realizing, oh, <laughs> what do you do about you know, optimizing the charging infrastructure because a lot of chargers are loss making, right? They're high capex, especially the high speed chargers. Um, they don't pay back in a very reasonable amount of time. So how do you, you know, handle that in a way that's profitable? How do you then handle the grid? 
Um, and yes, how do you handle just like the user experience of it creating clutter everywhere? I think some cities in the world have actually banned some of those mm, solutions have- now. Some have banned and some have kind of created some kind of, uh, you know, lim- not monopolies, but they're kind of limiting the access to market to two companies or three companies and not allowing everybody to the streets of the towns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I think, does it have its place? Yeah, probably. I think they could probably refine that model in ways like you just described, mm. where it, it could be a little bit more effective than it is now. It's not going to solve the problem all by itself, right? And so it's it's one puzzle piece in the broader puzzle. You know, we look at a lot of autonomous vehicles uh, because of our founder's background, partially. And for example, if you take a regular car that is owned by an individual, it's utilized something like under 10%, typically. Because people drive from point A to point B, and then their car sits in a parking lot like the whole day while they're in the office or something like that. And so with an autonomous vehicle, you now enable potentially, once the technology gets there, uh, the ability to dramatically increase the utilization of any given vehicle because the car can drop someone off and drive off somewhere else and go pick up someone else. And so the combination of electrification, autonomous vehicles, and sharing of vehicles, right? So it's going to take three huge macro trends to all coalesce together to create something that now actually could be hugely disruptive and interesting. Mm -hmm. If you can increase a vehicle's utilization from 4% to like 40%, now we're talking about you could actually massively reduce the number of vehicles on the roads in general. But that's what it takes. And it's taken decades for those three big macro trends to Mm -hmm. kind of rise and come together. And so I think that's, that's how a lot of this is going to happen. We're taking bets that, you know, you're kind of planting a seed and creating, you know, you're watering it and you're, you know, giving it some food and, and you know, and then eventually, yes, you're going to have that flower pop out and, and, you know, be able to reap the benefits. But, but these are, these are things that take time. Mm. The, uh, and, uh, you know, looking at the climate situation, time is not the commodity we have too much at our hand, right? So to me, the climate investments are always kind of challenged from the point of view that uh, we have the climate which is deteriorating, you know, faster than anyone would like to. And at the other hand, we have often the investments which actually have longer kind of uh, cycle than many of the software investments or many of those uh, investments where you uh, improve the CRM system to give the sales results faster or something, something else which is really useful for the humanity. Yeah. And we've done most of our deals in hardware, um, which makes us a little bit different, I guess, compared to some other funds. Uh, what I would say about that is, is we think about impact in two main categories. And so there's kind of ongoing emissions, right? Which is like we're as a species emitting something like 50 gigatons of CO2 equivalent every year, which is a lot. Um, but then there's all the historical emissions. So it's kind of like forward-looking, backward-looking, right? So all the accumulated emissions from basically since the Industrial Revolution, That's already up there. So you need solutions that abate and shut off the tap on the ongoing emissions. And then you need other solutions that draw down so that all the stuff that's already up there, you know, you sequester it and and get rid of that too. 
to me, there is also the third part to kind of enable us to somehow survive with a changing climate. Right. Adaptation and, and mitigation. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that is a very robust debate <laughs> because I agree with you. It does need to be, and we have made an investment in, um, for example, a company, Avalo, that does um, an interesting gene screening platform that helps to create climate adapt adaptive crops. Um, so their MVP is um, related to rice that can be uh, grown at colder climates um, because, again, with rising sea levels, farmers are going to need to go higher and higher altitude to, to plant those crops. So that one's definitely in the more kind of adaptation camp. Where I think the line gets fuzzy is where a decision between climate adaptation and climate change eradication, call it, um, feels like it's creating opportunity cost. So, for example, meat, right? So ruminating livestock, cows and lamb and, you know, a huge percentage of global greenhouse gases, methane that's emitted by cows burping, uh, which is pretty gross and pretty burping. shocking. Burping. I was thinking it was coming out of the other part of the body, but okay. You know, I used to think that too. Uh, and it's funny, the kinds of things you learn when you start <laughs> working in, in a climate fund yeah. <laughs> and you start doing a bunch of research. <laughs> yeah, apparently it's more burping than the yeah. other yeah. end of the animal. Anyway. Um, oh, okay. So um, there are solutions that are being developed to feed the cows certain things in their feed. You can add certain species of seaweed. You can, you know, some companies are trying to do additives made of like garlic, you know, and other things. Yeah, yeah I know you see your face. It's <laughs> maybe causing Depend. more of a problem. Yes. Um, the point is, is feed additives to reduce the methane that is burped through the digestive process of cows. That feels like an adaptation or a mitigation play. On the contrary, we tend to go more for how do you just replace this whole problem of burping cows? Okay, how do we encourage more people to move to plant-based diets? How do we um, create, grow meat, real meat in a lab instead of in a grassland and out, you know, with whole animals. So, so we, have, we have two cellular agriculture companies in our portfolio where you take a cell of meat or fish and you grow it in a bioreactor uh, until it becomes a chunk of meat or a chunk of fish. And so it's real. It's not like a soy-based, you know, fake piece of meat with taste issues and texture issues and all of those. It's a real piece of cow or fish it's mm. just that you never had to have a whole animal and kill it and spend all those resources rearing it to get there so that's more the thesis and it almost feels in some ways and this is why it becomes a very robust debate that we go back and forth on it feels in some ways like if you invest in mitigation are you for every dollar that you spend on that is there an opportunity cost because that's a dollar you could have spent on something that would have more wholly eradicated the problem. And I'm not necessarily saying that I know the absolute answer to that. I don't mm. even think there is a black and white answer to that. I think it's an ongoing, very robust <laughs> debate, mm. actually. There probably isn't, but at the same time, you know, looking from the outside, 
clearly as I don't even know about those gases coming out of the animals. But looking from the outside, if you replace the animals with a plant-based food, uh, you would kind of think that the problem is solved and you don't need to invest on changing the animal's diet. Thing is, is I don't think you're ever going to get 100% of Earth's population to convert to a plant-based diet wholly. That's probably true. So certainly not in a short enough period of time to drive the amount of change that we need in the food and agriculture industry. So mm. that's where, you know, but, but then again, that's why maybe something like cellular agriculture could come to the rescue, right? So go ahead, eat the meat, just produce the meat a different way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so back to that whole point of like, recreate the way things are done. Mm. You know, maybe you don't compromise on the end outcome of eating meat. You just go back and recreate how it's done. Mm. But I think in overall picture, probably uh, plant-based foods are quite a massive um, kind of potential climate investment field or the sector at least. Yeah, and we've done a bunch of those as well. We have a plant-based dog food company. Um, We have a company that's also using data science and algorithms to create some very, very interesting plant-based foods um, that I'm not even allowed to talk about yet because <laughs> they are potentially going to be so disruptive. Um, so, so we definitely believe in that thesis as well. I think there, again, so, me- so much of this is parallel tracking, mm. right? Just like we were talking about with the electrification of transport. I think with food, definitely you're going to need the plant-based alternatives and convert a good portion of the population to eating those. You're going to need the real meat grown in different ways for everyone else. You're going to need all of it. The problem is just that big that no one solution is going to be able to solve Mm. all of it. I mean, we're facing a huge, you know, set of huge problems going forward. Uh, If you would have a crystal ball, you know, what would at one be doing in five or 10 years? Well, in terms of what we think we'll be investing in or just at a higher level what we think we'll be doing i think investing in is probably i mean i hope that we will be able to solve some of the problems within the 10-year time frame because otherwise we are quite troubled Hmm. well i think there are certain things that are certain technologies that are still a bit nascent today that maybe in five or 10 years time will be a little bit more ripe for investment. For example, carbon capture is an area where there's a lot of companies that are working on carbon capture, but because as I mentioned, our thesis is about disruptive unit economics, economically rational decisions from your customers. And so we believe in carbon capture that that means they need to get to a price of maybe $30 a ton of captured um, captured carbon. And so a lot of those companies just aren't there yet, right? It's, it's, they need some Moore's law to kick in. And so maybe in five to 10 years time, they might get there. And so that industry is a good example of one that will be a bit more ripe in that time frame to invest in. And we're, we're keeping a very close eye on that space, of course, to keep understanding the cutting edge of it. But as of right now, um, 
there are not too many companies that seem like they have a credible shot at getting to $30 a ton. You know, most are getting to about $100 a ton or maybe $50 a ton. So I think there's a few examples like that. Um, beyond carbon capture, I think more and more people will start to realize that carbon is not the whole story. And so I think we and others in our space will start to look at some of these other planetary issues that I mentioned earlier. So yeah, more on the biodiversity front. I think the entire carbon credit landscape is also quite nascent. And so as regulation catches up, because unfortunately regulation feels like it's a bit behind where we need it to be right now on that front. And as carbon credit regulation steps up and, and, and regulation of what happens to people who emit, right? So get rid of the whole cap and trade system, right? And, and when, once that kind of all decreases the way it's projected to over time, make the polluter just pay, yeah. <laughs> right? And then channel those funds towards backing nature-based projects and, and things like that. So once all of that evolves, which I think it will in the next five years, I think you're going to see a very different, you know, carbon credit landscape that's going to create a lot of new, interesting investable opportunities as well. Mm. Right now, a lot of that feels a bit uncertain. And we do invest in it still to try and fix some of the problems that we see. So we invest in you know, remote sensing um, to help estimate carbon stocks in a low cost way using satellite-based data. Uh, and, and so we do invest in various points in that, that value chain to try and help, help fix it right, and help accelerate getting it to that point where it's effective. Um, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done and not all of it is in the VC realm. A lot of it is in that regulation space. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's going to be quite interesting as well in the next kind of five to 10 years. Yeah, cynic in, in me thinking that if you invest in uh, regulation space, then you invest in lobbying and politicians and, right? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I wouldn't say that I am going to count on the right things happening. <laughs> A hundred percent. But I do think that things are starting to head in the right direction. They might not be happening fast enough. And that's why I'm saying, I mean, I, they should be happening right now. Mm. And so that's already an indication of how it's happening too slow, right? But your question was about five yeah. to 10 years. And so <laughs> if it happens in that time frame, then fine. Then that's what we work with. And that's unfortunately a lot of what we're dealing with right now is we're just having to play the cards that were dealt. Mm -hmm. exactly. Right. And so there's only so much VC can do. We're not a silver bullet. None of these solutions are, it takes an ecosystem of all these players, including various stages of investors. We need debt players. We need grant providers to provide, you know, risk capital at the earliest stages in a non-dilutive way. We need governments to come in with the right regulation we need, you know, corporations to come around and, you know, figure out their scope three emissions and we, we need all of it. So, yeah, again, we're doing what we can and we're working around the obstacles, mm. but all Basi basically it's a big ecosystem game and VCs are one piece of the puzzle. puzzle. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We're one tool in the toolkit. Good. 
I think that's a good point to wrap it up. Uh, Helen, thanks for the interesting discussion. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Join us again for the next episode. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please give us a good rating and leave the feedback in your podcast player so others will find it too. We will be back next week. Turn on to Nature Backed Podcast. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Has Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.